This is Radio Parallax, a slightly different perspective from a slightly different view, with topics that include matters in science, technology, history, politics, current events, and whatever we damn well please. And now the host of Radio Parallax, Douglas Everett. Our goal with doing this program has always been to inform and as much as possible entertain. We've been privileged over the years to speak with many authors with similar aims. Few managed to produce thought-provoking investigations in quite the amusing manner of our guest today, best-selling author Mary Roach. Mary Roach's writings have appeared in National Geographic, Outside, and the New York Times Magazine. Her many bestsellers include Bonk, The Curious Coupling of Science and Sex, Gulp, Adventures in the Elementary Canal, and Grunt, The Curious Science of Humans at War. Said Wired Magazine, nobody does weird science quite like Mary Roach. Her newest book is titled Fuzz, When Nature Breaks the Law. It was one of BookPage's most anticipated books for 2021. As with her prior efforts, the readers of Fuzz will learn a lot of science and often laugh out loud while doing so. If you've ever had a tree branch do you wrong or driven into an animal pedestrian, or maybe even have to barter with the monkey that made off with your sunglasses, you know that dealing with nature can be a bitch. We are keen to talk about man's not always smooth relationship with nature and pleased to be able to say welcome back to Radio Parallax, Mary Roach. Thank you so much. Lovely to be back. Well, the smallest sides in your book, Mary, I think, are at least a lot of us think are some of their best parts. I'd like to start with one. I was particularly tickled by the widespread notion that it is best to throw bird seed at newlyweds because rice supposedly makes birds explode is something we need to set straight, I think. <laughs> I bought into that for a long time. It seemed to be the thing that everybody knew. But in fact, uh, when you look into the history of efforts to keep birds from devouring entire fields of rice that is growing, uh, you realize it, it really makes no sense because uh, rice farmers have had a hell of a time <laughs> keeping birds from eating their rice. So in fact, it doesn't happen. But it's, <laughs> what's interesting is that um, a lot of churches... Uh, places where people get married, they, they forbid the practice, not because it's going to be dangerous for the birds, but because the wedding guests might slip on the grains and fall. So you do kind of, you still see people saying, you know, no, uh, forbidding the practice of throwing rice. There was actually legislation even <laughs> forbidding <laughs> the practice of throwing rice at nuptial affairs. Well, it seems to me that bird seed might be as slippery as rice, but I'm no expert, so we'll have to let it go, I guess. <laughs> Another item you clarified was something they really played up in the press in India, which was attacks by gangs of monkeys. While they're surely pests, they don't stone you to death, as I guess the Indian press reported at one point. But one might steal your cell phone knowing you'll try to get it back by offering him food. It's, it's, I guess it's still plenty annoying. Yeah, they're pretty slick, those monkeys. They have a good sense of what is valuable to humans. They will grab a cell phone or a pair of flashy sunglasses. In one case, uh, I heard about an asthma inhaler, so they'll grab those, but they don't go far away, and obviously they're not using the cell phone <laughs> to make a call. So they, And then they kind of hang out, and they know that uh, Indians, at least Indian people, know to just give, a, give the monkey a piece of fruit or a cookie, and they'll drop the cell phone, and you'll get it back. They kind of hold it for ransom. They've been uh, involved in some a little more serious. So there have been a number of people who've fallen from balconies. <laughs> Because the monkeys have like surprised them by dropping onto the balcony from the roof to get inside the house, and the people are like, "Whoa!" 
and they lose their footing or they try to fight the monkeys off and they've fallen. The deputy mayor of Delhi actually died that way. They have run into medical institutes. There was a case of a monkey pulling out IVs to suck the glucose, you know, if you're getting fed through a tube. It's like just sort of sucking it like soda pop. So they're pretty slick. Very vexing. It's a difficult problem to deal with because um, in Hinduism, the monkey is a Hanuman, the monkey god. So there's a, a kind of a reverence for these animals, and people feed them, sort of making an offering. They're always right outside the Hanuman temples. You see dozens of macaques, and they're being fed and encouraged to be further uh, annoying. And there are fines for feeding them, but people ignore that. So it's a difficult problem. It's trying to solve it with birth control, which has its own challenges in a free range of population. Well, speaking of that, I mean, I think anyone familiar with the Indian bureaucracy is going to get a big laugh out of your discovery about this jurisdictional arguments over monkey control in Delhi. <laughs> the buck gets passed back and forth between the chief veterinarian and the chief game warden, and I guess you got caught up in that. Yeah, I, I went to the South Delhi Municipal Corporation, which is this massive 18-story bureaucratic structure, and uh, I spent some time with the the man who's in charge of the veterinary services, which is dealing with uh, stray dogs, a lot of what they're dealing with, and their feeling is, these are wild animals. This is the purview of the forest department. So they would send me over, they sent me over to the forest department. And meanwhile, the forest department said, these animals are in the city. They are no longer wild. This is not our problem. So nobody wants to deal with it. And plus, it's uh, the monkeys, you know, monkeys are protected under the Wildlife Protection Act. So any solution that you could do with the larger monkeys to scare the smaller monkeys, which is what was being done, uh, that is illegal. And uh, so they had at one point hired uh, people to impersonate the calls of the bigger monkeys to scare away the smaller monkeys that caused most of the trouble, uh, which probably worked for a little while, but monkeys are pretty smart, and they call your bluff. Well, you spent several chapters looking at the interface between the people of India and their monkeys, leopards, and elephants, and uh, I was impressed that an angry elephant does seem like something you'd want to avoid, especially when they're drunk or have raging hormones. Most assuredly, you do not want to confront a um, testosterone-addled drunk <laughs> elephant. You're better off, actually, with a, with a group, a small herd, than you are with one lone, <laughs> one lone elephant, because that's likely to be one of those males in musk. And 500 people a year in India are, are killed by elephants. Not that they're um, you know, stalking them and killing them, but um, what happens is that they, these groups of elephants up in the north of India, they, they come through an area, and they're... They're big animals, and they eat a lot of vegetation. And so if you're a farmer and you've got a field of crops and a group of eight elephants comes through, you freak out. And you run out, and you've got firecrackers or a torch, and you're trying to scare them off. But what happens? You break up this family unit, and that makes them panicked and defensive. And it's also often happening at night. So you have people running around, and you have elephants running around, and people, uh, people often will get knocked over or trampled, and that's, that's how they're killed, and it's surprisingly common. I think you mentioned at one point one man who was liquored up and tried to take on a herd by himself. It didn't go well. <laughs> no, no, the, the news story 
somebody was quoted saying, he took them on by himself. <laughs> and them, them, was 18 elephants. He, uh, he did not survive that encounter. Well, closer to home, you've explored the interface of bears and people. Uh, what should people know to help rein in marauding bears, which we have, I guess, all over North America? Well, um, the, yeah, the, the, this is a situation where uh, prevention is the best approach. As with most criminal activities, it's much better to try to prevent these things from happening. And, and with bears, bears are they're, they're looking for food. They tend to come into human habitation when they can smell food, and they will... They're pretty good at breaking into cars and homes to get food, sometimes when people are there. And that's, for that reason, they're um, classed as a threat to public safety, and they end up getting uh, killed. So the best thing to do for people is to you know, make sure that they don't leave windows open, uh, don't have bird feeders, don't leave food on the deck, you know, clean the grill if you've been grilling meat. And most of all, like, Secure, you know, get a bear-resistant garbage container. And it all sounds like it should be pretty straightforward, but you can pass laws saying, okay, you have to use this bear, these bear-resistant containers, but that means you've got to get the waste management people on board. And if you're in a community like Aspen, Colorado, where I was, and it's um, a lot of vacation rentals, people come in to ski, they come in to mountain bike, and they're coming from out of town. They don't know that you're supposed to lock these containers, they may not bother to do it. It also means there's a lot of homes left unattended when they're not being rented out. Um, so you have bears that take advantage of that and, and break into homes. And if someone reports that, that the bear has broken into a home, then the uh, local agencies are likely to set a trap and then that bear will be destroyed. So it's really important for people to just think through their environment and make sure they're not attracting them. Yeah, I was a little surprised to read in your book how ineffective relocating bears and other animals really kind of is in the end. I didn't realize that either until I reported the book. Bears are surprisingly good at finding their way back. I think the record is 142 miles for a bear to find its way back to where it started out. Um, the other thing that happens sometimes when you translocate a, a bear far away it makes its way to the nearest town or human neighborhood and starts doing the same kinds of things there. And the problem there has to do with liability. If you're the agency that moved the bear and now it's getting in trouble or even injuring somebody or mauling somebody, now you're legally liable. And there have been, there's been some fairly large payouts from lawsuits that have had to do with um, a bear being relocated, and then the agency not really following through. There was a case where a girl was mauled, and that was, a, I don't know, four-plus-million-dollar payout. So those are two of the limiting factors. And also it's it's pretty tough on the bear as well. And yeah. It's nice to give them a second chance rather than destroying them, but it, you're introducing a bear into possibly another bear's territory. Um the bear has to figure out where the food sources are. I mean, it's a, it's not a, it's not a pleasant experience for a bear just dropped off in a new location. But anyway, so yeah, about seventy-five percent of wildlife agencies will try it, 
uh, but only 15%. This was a survey done a few years back. Only 15% of them feel like it's a really effective solution. Well, I would like to ask uh, ask you about one of the things you spent some time exploring, uh, actual attacks from animals. Uh, do you have any advice for listeners of what they need to keep in mind, God forbid, if a bear attack is looking possible? There used to be a saying you would hear, or you still hear, um, if it's black, fight back. If it's brown, lie down, which is not very helpful because a lot of brown bears <laughs> look black and a lot of black bears look brown. But more important is to have a sense of, is this a defensive attack? Like, have you startled this bear and it just wants you to back off? Or is this creature really intent on harming you? Um, most of the time, when a bear comes at you, it's uh, a, like a bluff charge. It's just going to run a short distance and stop. It's not going to come all the way. It's just going to try to look big and scary. And, and your job in that case is to show that bear that uh, you're not a threat. So just sort of slowly backing off and, you know, speaking in a calm voice, and you'll probably be fine. It's very, very rare that a bear actually attacks. Sometimes what's going on is the person has a dog, and the dog and the bear kind of get engaged in a, in a um, threatening each other, and then the person tries to step in, or the bear just, you know, refocuses its, its attention on the human and that's that's when people can really get hurt so um you know if you're traveling in bear country and have bear spray handy and you know have it easily accessible not like in the bottom of your pack so that you know if you if you do if it is coming all the way towards you or if there's you know a situation with a dog then you have you have it you know ready to go so that that'd be a important thing to keep in mind we're speaking with author Mary Roach about her highly entertaining new book, Fuzz, When Nature Breaks the Law. Uh, Mary, one chapter that really stuck with me um, was how birds were kind of uh, the subject of futile military actions. Uh, can you talk a bit about dynamiting crows, bombing blackbirds, and, and even machine-gunning emus? Historically, there's been a, a, a problem with these large flocks of migrating red-winged blackbirds and grackles and crows um, that have, you know, they like to eat grains. And so if you're the person, say, growing or sunflower seeds is a good example, you're somebody, you, you as a farmer are going to be trying to keep millions of birds from eating bird seed, which is a pretty tough thing. So um, there was there have been efforts to um, solve the, the issue by uh, destroying tens of thousands or more of the, these birds, but in in studies done even by the USDA itself, that doesn't doesn't make much of a dent in the population. Certainly not enough to prevent um, the kind of damage that the agricultural damage. So it's much better to try to uh, influence the environment, make changes to the crops that you're growing or the location of the fields, etc. Crow bombing was a practice in the early part of the last century, which was pretty much what it sounds like. There were um, people from the, people with titles like Texas Conservation Officer would come in, the community would string dynamite in these trees where the crows would be roosting at night. Uh, the crows would be gone during the day. They would string up uh, strings of explosives. And then once the birds had come back to roost, they would set them off. And what was kind of an irony was that the, 
And in this case, it was partly an agricultural problem for the farmers, but it was also um, hunters were complaining that the crows were eating duck eggs. And consequently, the hunters wouldn't have enough ducks to shoot. So <laughs> for that reason, they were blowing up crows. Um, and this, you know, the practice went on for a decade or more. was not effective in terms of, uh, in terms of the, the duck population or the crow population or the amount of damage that was happening to crops. So, yeah, not a very nice practice and not very effective. And in a similar vein, the U.S. Navy had kind of a legendary rough go trying to deal with albatrosses out on Wake Island uh, before they finally closed that naval base in 1993. Can you please outline for us a, a little bit of that comedy of errors? Oh, yeah, they called it actually the second battle for Midway Island. <laughs> because Midway Island is partway between here and Asia, strategically it was a, a coveted location for a base, and the U.S. did build a, a, a naval base there. And all along where the planes would land and take off, there were uh, albatross nests, thousands of them. And I think the Navy assumed going in that, well, these birds will hear the planes coming in and out and see them, and they'll decide to move away. Well, they didn't. The albatross is a pretty unflappable bird. Uh, They stayed right there. And the military pretty much turned everything it had on them, bazookas, rifles, mortars, Hand-to-hand combat, uh, <laughs> burning tires, noxious smells. <laughs> they brought in a. They brought in this pair of um, zoologists who had a much gentler approach. But they at one point they strung up wires across the nesting area to to trip <laughs> to trip the birds. <laughs> um, they even tried. They had to, at one point they saw that some of the wives, the military wives, would, were were. Um, Carrying tablecloths, which and walking towards the birds, which seemed to disperse them. So, the zoologists wanted the the, the navy to set up this regime of personnel hired to move around through the nesting area with large colored squares of cloth. <laughs> the um, eventually, the uh, military kind of got tired of the zoologists and sent them on their way. Although, you know, they were. They were trying to figure it out. There was just nothing they could do. The military actually tried flying the birds to other islands <laughs> hundreds of miles away. The birds came right back. The albatross has a pretty good internal GPS. It will come right back to its nesting site. So uh, in the end, and the reason the reason the Navy was concerned was the uh, bird strikes. Right? They were concerned that the, because an albatross is a big bird, and they were concerned that the, there was going to be a bird strike that would bring down a plane, which is expensive and dangerous to the people on the plane. But in fact, it never, they did have bird strikes, but they, uh, there was no humans killed, but that, that, that was their concern. And in the end, the base system shut down, and the albatrosses remained. So they kind of won the battle, which I like. Well, over a two-year period, Mary, you did quite a bit of traveling for for the purpose of putting this book together, I think into some sketchy areas. Uh, did you feel endangered at any point when you were doing these investigations? There was one afternoon when I was I was in this region of the Middle Himalaya, uh, this, um, which is in, in, in India, not, the, you know, not where Everest is, not the airless snow-covered peaks, but closer to the foothills where there's um, unlike in other parts of India where there are leopards, these leopards actually do 
on occasion stalk and, and kill people to eat. So um, I was there, and I had come in along this road. It's not very well-traveled uh, through the mountains, and the researcher I was traveling with would be pointing out, like, you see this bus stop, a man was killed here in 2017. And <laughs> two miles later, he'd be like, this field. People were working during the day, a most audacious attack, a young woman was killed. So all along the way, this sort of narration of leopard mayhem. Um, and then I decide one afternoon to go for a walk. And I don't really time it right, because the sun, the sun sinks behind the hill pretty quick there. And I didn't expect it to get dark, which is, you know, the, the leopards mostly are attacking at dusk. So I, here I am walking back, not really knowing my way, and it's dusk, and I know that this road is where <laughs> at least six people have been atta- attacked over the years and killed. I wasn't being stalked that I know of, but I did have this sense of being not so much in danger as really stupid. <laughs> <laughs> well, your book isn't just about animals. You talk about, uh, well, at one point, the blowing up of dangerous trees, which which that seems pretty scary, though I, I guess you made it sound like it was a lot of fun for the boys doing the blowing up. Oh, yeah. I mean, I got to uh, hit the uh, sumper, the thing that sets off the destination. Uh, this is a chapter that has to do with danger trees. The combination of danger and tree was kind of <laughs> amusing for me. But this is these are, these are trees that are usually uh, very, very large and very old, like those. Um, stands of legacy, Douglas firs up in BC is, is where I was, McMillan Grove. And because this, these the people come from all over to see these beautiful old trees, to walk amid them and drive amid them. And because they're really old, some of them are starting to rot inside. And it's kind of, you can't see, unless you know what you're looking for, it's hard to know which ones are starting to become unstable such that if there's a storm, a heavy wind, uh, a lot of snow weight, these uh, trees could uh, fall over. And, in fact, somebody was killed that way not long ago, and that's why they hire a uh, danger tree assessor. I spent spent an afternoon with a a man whose business card says danger tree assessor. (laughs) So he's somebody who goes up to a tree, kind of knocks on the trunk, if there's any uh, conks, they're this kind of outward manifestation of a lot of interior rot. So if you see that, you know the tree is pretty far along. And because these trees, they take a hundred years to die, mm-hmm. but very slow. At a certain point, they start to be lean a certain way or tip, or they they there are things to look for, which are sort of signs that uh, somebody could get hurt. So depending on where it's located, is it near a path? Is it near a road? structure, uh, you, you know, you then have to deal with it. And the way that you deal with one of those great big Douglas firs is to have someone climb up two-thirds of the way up and put dynamite in and blow off the top, which makes it more stable. It's not, you don't have to worry so much about it moving around in the wind, and it's likely to buy you some more time. And that means that uh, it still looks like a beautiful, majestic Douglas fir if you're walking around or driving in a car. Because you can't, unless you have binoculars, can't really see that the top is missing. Mm-hmm. So that's kind of how they deal with it. And uh, uh, I have to say, it is kind of um, it's kind of fun to, bl- <laughs> to set off <laughs> explosions. 
I think your most singular illustration in, in the work is, an, uh, is that of an 1882 patent for a rodent trap that, that, where the vermin pushes a bar and it fires a cock pistol. And you note the patent holder was not overly concerned about the humane dispatching of the vermin. In fact, he noted it may also be used in connection with a door window so as to kill any person or thing opening the door or window. Are, are you optimistic we're moving away from this? <laughs> oh, my God. That, was a, that, that patent, and it, and it comes with this illustration, as most patents do, where they show... <laughs> A, a burrow out on a hillside and a little, I don't know what kind of rodent it is, sticking its head out. And there's, it, it's like a, you know, a, a, an old pistol kind of just set up in a frame with a wire attached. So <laughs> the rodent is facing the barrel of the pistol, uh, you know, about to step on whatever the trigger is. And, um, yeah, the, I, I forget the guy's name. But the patent included, yes, a bit of information that you could also use it in your own home. <laughs> uh, don't know how popular that item was, but it was. Uh, but the funny thing is that in terms of humane dispatch of, of a creature, gunshot to the head is, is, is quick and thus pretty humane. So I, I don't get the feeling that that was this man's concern. Well, by the end of the book, you make a case for sort of a more peaceful coexistence with scofflaw animals and plants, too. Uh, which probably the listeners know that they can consider asking pest control companies to find ways of excluding vermin from their house rather than exterminating them. Yeah, that, that's correct. I have a guide, uh, an appendix in the book with some resources for people uh, who are dealing with animals that they rather would go away um, the Humane Society of the United States has a good section on their website called What to Do About, and it's species by species, and there's suggested um, ways of, of coping and discouraging these animals. And it's also information about um, how to choose a humane wildlife operator, control operator, somebody who's not just going to set a trap and then disappear with the creature and you don't know if they're going to you know, put it in a CO2 chamber, or are they going to just let it go willy-nilly, what it, or exactly what they're going to do. And there are people who specialize in excluding, that is to say, looking at your property and seeing how they're getting in and helping you fix that, and also getting the animal out in a way that when a wild animal gets into your attic, say, wants to build a nest to have babies. So if you hire someone to trap the animal when it leaves, um, it may be leaving behind the young ones. Right. So that um, doesn't solve the problem and is also kind of cruel. So there's a, you can have a trap with a one-way door, so animals, can all of them can get out but not get back in. So there's people who know how to do that, and they also know a lot about the behavior and the life cycles of these creatures and, and you know, when it's best to do it, how to do it effectively and in a humane way. So there, there's information about finding how to choose a wildlife control operator to help you if you've got uh, critters already setting up housekeeping in your property. Well, in, in wrapping up, I, I'm guessing that the research you do must must surprise you a lot, things you find. Is, is there something, uh, an item or two that really stands out that really, really surprised you to learn? The thing that probably was most surprising to me was just the number of people killed by elephants was a huge yeah. surprise, having you know grown up with the bar and Dumbo and National Geographic. I just didn't see those animals as a threat. But it's just it's interesting just to see the reality of that and, and you know, just every 
culture has its own unique, pro- both problems and solutions. So it, it was all interesting to me. It was all new to me. <laughs> Well, we've been speaking with Mary Roach about her new book and, and I'm going to guess newest bestseller, Fuzz, When Nature Breaks yeah. the Law. <laughs> we recommend it very highly. Uh, I would note that we barely scratched the surface of what you're going to find in its pages. So, dear listener, you're going to want to snag your own copy. Before you go, Mary, is there a website you can refer us to? And, and, and also, are there any talks lately you, you may be giving that people may want to attend? Oh, yeah, sure. The, the website is maryroach.net. And there is an event page that will list, um, there's still some more events in October, and a bunch of them are virtual, so anybody can join. So there's a list of those uh, October events uh, on maryroach.net. Fantastic. We're speaking with author Mary Roach about her highly entertaining new book, Fuzz, When Nature Breaks the Law. Thank you very much for speaking with us. Oh, my pleasure. That was fantastic. Appreciate you taking the time to actually read some of it, which is, you know, doesn't always happen. Looking forward to the next one. Thank you. Best of luck. All right, you too. Take care. Bye-bye. Bye. Let's take a short break. I'm Douglas Everett. This is Radio Parallax. We've got plenty more. Stick around. <laughs> 